Welcome to the Healthy Skin Show with Jennifer Fugo, where we're flipping everything you've been told about your chronic skin issues upside down and connecting you with alternative solutions your dermatologist never told you about. Welcome back to episode number 302 of the Healthy Skin Show. In today's episode, we are going to talk about a very itchy, hellish condition called prurigo nodularis. It is a condition that can cause a great amount of mental anguish and stress, and I would almost say depression and anxiety just simply because of how almost maddening the itchiness can be. Sometimes people will develop these lesions, other people will not. It's a very interesting condition, and I wanted to have a conversation about it. Partly because one of our guests who was on the show earlier this year is one of the experts in this particular topic in the United States. So I'm welcoming back to the show, Dr. Sean Quatra. Some of you might remember that he talked about histamine and itch earlier in another episode. But in today's episode, we're going to dive into this concept of nodularis. And for those of you, if you missed that episode, Dr. Quatra is the director of the Johns Hopkins Itch Center and an associate professor of dermatology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. He specializes in medical dermatology with his areas of clinical expertise, including atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, chronic itch of unknown origin, and dermatology for ethnic skin. Dr. Quatra also runs a basic science laboratory and clinical trials unit and is funded by the National Institutes of Health and multiple foundations. Dr. Quatra has been an author or co-author on over 200 publications, as well as author of the book, Living With Itch. And he's also just an amazing human being. So glad to have him back. So without further ado, let's dive into today's conversation. Dr. Quattro, thank you so much for joining us back on the Healthy Skin Show. I'm glad you're here. Thanks so much for having me back. So we are going to talk today about what I have come to learn is basically like your kind of special expertise. I feel like you're like Superman in regards to prurigo nodularis. It's this condition that a lot of people have not heard of. I admittedly did not know about it, um, probably more so until you and I had a conversation about it. It was not something that was really on my radar, but I feel like we're going to hear about it more in the coming months and years. And so I thought we could kick off this conversation by talking about what are the symptoms that are very common that people experience with this condition and also who seems to end up with this type of skin condition. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me on and for asking about Prigonagularis or PN. It's a disease that's been really under-recognized for quite a bit of time, and a lot of patients have suffered because of that. But broadly, Prigonagularis can be thought of as a unique uh, skin disease, just like you think about atopic dermatitis or psoriasis. Prigonagularis would be just another one of those diseases. And the dominant skin manifestation here is a bump on the skin. It can be just a few millimeters. It can be a, even a few centimeters in, in terms of size, and it's intensely itchy. So the signs are intense itch, so chronic itch that's lasted for greater than uh, six weeks or longer, uh, signs of repetitive scratching, so 
uh, when you look at these nodules, oftentimes they're excoriated, there's blood that's uh, coming out, there's even a hemorrhagic crust on top. And uh, those are pretty much uh, all you need to have a diagnosis of paragonodularis. It tends to affect the extremities, so areas that uh, can be scratched, so the upper arms, lower arms, the chest, and the back. And what's interesting is that the itch these patients experience is in these nodules, but oftentimes it's also in the normal appearing skin uh, next door. So does the itchiness just impact the lesions themselves, or is it also like all over? Yes. Yeah, so in two thirds of patients, the itch that they're experiencing is in the nodules. And it's honestly a lot of the time heightened in the nodules. It's very intense in the nodules, but it's also most of the time in that normal appearing skin. And what's really unique about paragonodularis is that unlike eczema or psoriasis, which starts earlier in life, paragonodularis tends to start a little bit later. So around middle age, the average age is around age 50. And so you have a lot of folks that haven't had anything their whole life. And then one day, out of the blue, they get these intensely itchy nodules. They can't sleep. You know, they have psychosocial distress because the appearance of these nodules. And it absolutely ravages many aspects of their life. And so, th so this is a mostly adult issue. Do you ever see it in children? Very rare in children. It is... Uh, really uncommon uh, in children. In adults, it's a few hundred thousand folks uh, in the U.S., and it's probably even higher than that because it actually only got its own uh, diagnostic code to even be coded in 2015. And so what we're seeing is every year the incidence or prevalence is going up, which means we're probably under uh, counting the number of folks that have it. Because you're saying, okay, it might be underreported, maybe underdiagnosed because there could be a lack of awareness about it. And maybe someone might only see, for example, their, their primary care doctor. Is it possible could it be getting confused with something else? Absolutely. So a lot of the other docs may just call it rash or eczema or just lump them all together. That's oftentimes what ends up happening, that the disease gets confused with other diseases. Is there something similar, like another type of skin condition, it, like that this would be similar to, <laughs> you know, because I, I think sometimes, um, you know, there's different rashes where like, okay, maybe seborrheic dermatitis might sort of have some, like might look similar in some respects to like atopic dermatitis. And sometimes people are even, even, even some derms are like, I'm not sure it could be psoriasis, could be eczema. Let's do a biopsy. Sometimes things can kind of look alike. Is there something that this could be similar to? Yeah. So what's really interesting is that atopic dermatitis, especially in African-Americans sometimes can have these prigo-like nodules also. So there's definitely some uh, similarity with atopic dermatitis. They're both very itchy. Sometimes they can be bumpy. So that's definitely an, another similarity. Another analogy is think about having bug bites that then become chronic over time all over your body. So that's that's also another analogy that can be used here. Okay. And do they, does it usually like all appear at once or is it something where you get one or two bumps and then they start to spread with time? Yeah, you're, normally there's some type of trigger. Uh, it's hard to identify what it is, but uh, we've had some folks even after they've gotten certain vaccines or they've had an illness or other things, they may have had uh, raging uncontrolled type 2 diabetes, uh, something that may stimulate the neural or the immune system to react, to get sensitized towards having itch. 
And uh, so, so we know that there tends to, to sometimes be uh, these triggers that really set the disease off. And it can start as just a few on, say, one extremity, but then rapidly uh, they disseminate and you can get on you know, both sides of the body, the trunk, uh, really diffuse. Okay. So I read a paper um, and I wanted to know if this was true because I, I know with like psoriasis, occasionally you'll see skin infections in the plaques, occasionally. Then like with eczema, we have issues with staph aureus and sometimes there can be other infections. Is it possible for there to be any type of bacterial infections um, associated with the lesions themselves? Absolutely. So just like eczema and psoriasis, uh, the lesions here in Prigo, uh, nodularis can be secondarily infected with staph. Um, so that's definitely something that can be happening. But we don't necessarily think that's the primary driver of the disease because the question is, why are folks developing these nodules that sometimes can be so thick and so fibrotic and there's so much itch? The, the connection really between the nerves and the immune system is what has gone haywire. And then that chronic itch enables the scratching and then the pathogen. So it's a little bit different from atopic dermatitis. In atopic dermatitis, you actually have a genetically encoded barrier disruption where you're more likely... Uh, to, to have an impaired barrier. I, I have atopic dermatitis. And so if you have that impaired barrier, you're more likely to get colonization with these microbes. In prognodularis, you don't necessarily have that impaired barrier, but you have this stimulus of intense itch and skin thickening that then leads to secondary colonization. Got it. This is just, it, again, so different. And I, I will also share, I think it's worthwhile to share that your research, and well, I'm so glad you're here, but your research is funded by the NIH, correct? So you're doing some really revolutionary things right now. Absolutely. You know, we got interested in this topic uh, many years ago because I, I see all these patients and nobody knows what to do. And so, you know, I was applying for NIH funding and uh, someone told me, they said, you'll never get funded only, you know, studying this disease. So because they thought there's so little awareness, nobody knows about it. But and lo and behold, we're, we're very happy. We're actually studying both atopic dermatitis and parigonodularis uh, from the bench to the bedside. So we, we see patients in clinic. Uh, we draw their blood. Uh, sometimes we do skin biopsies or bacterial swabs. And then we go back to the lab and we try to figure out what's going on. So it's been very gratifying for us because we're able to see patients and then we're doing research, clinical research and also bench research to figure out what's going on. And we've actually, I think, made some very significant advances in our understanding the last few years. That is awesome. Well, so let's actually talk about the immunology side of this, because this is very clearly more than just us, just a skin problem. There is something going on under the surface. And um, my audience is fairly familiar, I think, with like the more superficial idea that cytokines are like chemical messengers in the body. And so they've heard things like IL-4 and IL-13 because that is associated with dupilumab and uh, atopic dermatitis. And then they've probably heard maybe the JAK-STAT pathway as there's been JAK inhibitors that have come up. So are there certain cytokines or even like the JAK-STAT pathway? Like what is associated from an immunologic standpoint with this condition? It's a great question. And I think all of those things that you mentioned are totally relevant. Uh, there's a lot of similarities between a lot of these different skin diseases. So 
one of the things I believe is that, you know, we have different names for these diseases, psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, uh, or chronic spontaneous urticaria. Uh, we call something itch of unknown origin, you know, it goes on and on. But actually, the, you know, molecular basis for a lot of these diseases, there may be some similarities across diseases. So that's one of the things that we've been able to learn. Uh, once dupilumab was FDA approved in 2017 for atopic dermatitis, um, then, you know, some reports started coming out uh, that it may be effective in paragonagularis. And uh, they actually did a, a phase three trial uh, showing efficacy uh, on the itch in the nodules uh, for dupilumab. So that's approved now for paragonagularis. Uh, what's also uh, really uh, close, uh, and actually I presented the, the global a release of the phase three study of nemalizumab in pragonagularis also. And that's a, a drug that targets uh, IL-31. So thought to be one of the master itch cytokines, IL-31 receptor alpha. And so I actually also presented that data and we found that just after one injection of this anti-IL-31 medicine, there was pretty rapid itch relief. So, so we, now we know we're learning, you know, there's a role for IL-13 and four and IL-31. Uh, we also know that some of these JAK-STAT uh, mediators that also interact with those cytokines are definitely involved. So there are studies going on with the JAK-STAT pathway. Um, and then, but beyond that, our, our group actually did the first bulk RNA, whole RNA sequencing study in these patients. And we found multiple immune axes, type 2 inflammation, but also 17 and 22. Um, and then our group also did the first single cell sequencing study. So we took biopsies from these patients. We isolated all of the individual cells. And basically what we found is that uh, there are, you know, distinct differences between patients. So this is like kind of something I've been thinking about is where our field's going with eczema, with psoriasis, with pregnagularis, that every patient's different. And so what we were able to see is that some folks, you know, had a phenotype very similar to atopic dermatitis. Some folks were a little bit more indeterminate between atopic dermatitis and psoriasis. And when we looked overall with the genes in paragonagularis, the disease actually links up great with our epidemiology data, which suggests it's a distinct disease. So paragonagularis is distinct molecularly uh, from atopic dermatitis and psoriasis as well. So that's kind of been the big thing. What's unique about paragonagularis on the molecular level is there's fibroblasts, so that leads to the skin thickening, that are very unique, very novel in this uh, disease. And actually, some of these fibroblasts are associated with the development of malignancies as well. So what we found is there's more cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas in these patients. They may be more likely to even get colorectal cancer later on. So the disease emerges in middle age, and by, by looking through the molecules, we're able to find that actually these patients may be at a risk for other uh, diseases that are consequences of chronic unchecked systemic inflammation. So type 2 diabetes, chronic kidney disease. Um, it, it, we know that these patients are more likely to also have uh, liver disease as well, um, atherosclerosis and heart disease, just like psoriasis, except paragonagularis patients have more comorbidities than psoriasis, more comorbidities than atopic dermatitis. Wow. Yeah. So it actually has more. When we compared all three, we had a recent publication, paragonagularis patients even when you control for age and all these other cofactors, had the most amount of comorbidities. So type 2 diabetes in particular, um, some reports over even 20%, almost 30% of patients are having uh, type 2 diabetes, other things like that. And one of the things I say is 
Prognagularis is arguably the itchiest of itch disorders. And so that leads to this impaired sleep. Uh, and then that can just wreck your whole life. So now when I counsel patients, I say, hey, there's a price not to treat here too. First of all, I ha just have to say that's a big, what you just said is a really big deal. That is a really big deal. Do, so I guess I'm wondering, is there a chicken and an egg scenario here? Like does PN show up first and then these other issues show up later? Or is it something where maybe you do have diabetes or one of these other conditions and then PN shows up? Yeah, it's a great, great question. So we looked at data sets and it goes both ways. So folks who have some of these conditions like type 2 diabetes are more likely to develop pregnagularis. But patients who have pregnagularis are also more likely to develop type 2 diabetes. So one way to think about it is folks who have type 2 diabetes oftentimes get neuropathies, right? So they can get peripheral neuropathies of all type. Actually, itch is a type of peripheral neuropathy because there's damage to the nerves in the skin. There are these nerves that go through the outer layer of the skin. They're called unmyelinated C fibers and A-delta thinly myelinated fibers. They go all the way out to their skin. And some of the studies in these patients, we've done them too, finding that even in normal appearing skin, in addition to the lesional skin, you have more branching of these nerves in the dermis and you have... Uh, almost a neuropathy in the epidermis, a dropout of them. So actually, you know, just like type 2 diabetes can cause peripheral neuropathies, you can actually cause a peripheral neuropathy that can probably trigger this disease also. So that's one of the fascinating things that, you know, we've been able to uncover. Kidney disease, chronic kidney disease also um, can be a trigger. We basically think that the triggers of this disease can be anywhere along the neuroimmune axis. So some studies have shown folks when they have a stroke, their disease has either been triggered or cleared. Some folks have had a spinal disc disease that triggered their, their, their uh, pregnagularis. Some folks, like I said, had a vaccine that triggered it. They had an immune illness. Um, they had um, other types of, uh, you know, kind of immune triggers to the disease. And so that's, you know, kind of changed the way that, you know, we think about the disease. And actually in real time, I have one patient who, she developed the disease when she was going through the most stressful time of her life. That's when it, it came out. We that's got her really, controlled. That's really hard too. We got her controlled. She got off therapy for two years. Then she lost her job and it came back. And folks were telling her it's all in your head before she saw me. Um, it's all in your head. So, you know, this poor lady thought, oh, you know, this is all in my head. You know, I should just not scratch and felt the guilt associated with that. And what I told her, no, you have a disease. This is its name. This is why it happens. You know, she started crying just with the diagnosis. And then when I, you know, when we look at these patients, we see there's neuroimmune triggers. So your mind is just as much a part of your nervous system as any other part of your body. These nerves in your skin go to the dorsal ganglion in your spinal cord and to your brain and they come back and forth. So actually, you know, if you're having the worst, you know, time of your life, you're going through a lot, that can be one of these neuroimmune triggers also. But most patients don't even have any type of psychiatric relationship, but they're just labeled as being crazy, unfortunately. So it's really been damaging for a lot of people to even get the correct diagnosis because until recently, we didn't have this research about 
you know, this immune disruption, the neural disruption. That's why, you know, I feel a lot of, um, you know, gratitude and also uh, importance that, you know, the, the work we're also doing can help folks realize that, you know, they don't need to blame themselves. There's something wrong going on. So that to me has been like the one of the most powerful uh, you know, parts of doing this type of research is, is helping to explain that. And so, you know, back to your question, why do some folks get these nodules? Well, last year at the Society for Investigative Dermatology meeting, we presented data that's now being published on uh, a genetic predisposition. So some folks are genetically predisposed to get this nodule. Other folks are just itchy, but they don't get the nodules. So actually it elevates the conversation that you may have a genetic susceptibility to developing these nodules, but it's not just one thing. You need environmental hits too. You may need, you may not be eating the right diet. You know, you may not, and we know it's incredibly important that is, because um, even that vagus nerve in the gut is basically a neural signaling organ. If you're not eating the right type of diet, high fiber, all that stuff, you know, that could be a source of where the itch can even be, be disseminated and triggered. Um, maybe it's other elements of your environment, like, uh, you know, we talked about the type 2 diabetes, HIV, folks who can develop HIV are more likely to develop this condition also because it triggers the immune response. So other kind of different elements like that. So I think we're learning a little bit more that it's both genetic and environmental inputs. And actually to bounce kind of back, maybe echo back to our previous conversation about itch. So when we spoke the last time, you said that and this was my suspicion, was that all this itch that everyone has may not likely be a histamine itch. <laughs> is this a histamine itch? Or is this, as you're kind of, you've alluded to, that it could be other things in the system that are driving the itch? Because I, I think that's where most people yeah. think it's, oh, I'll just take an antihistamine. And when the antihistamine doesn't work, they take another one, take more. And it's not helping. So is this at all associated with histamine or no? So that's a great question. And I think that's been the perception from dermatologists, providers, patients. Everyone has thought, you know, histamine and itch over so many decades. That's just been the thing that everybody thought. In hives or urticaria, you know, absolutely it plays a role. Uh, we're finding less and less of a role, though, because there's other things in in atopic dermatitis, in this condition, pregonagularis, histamine is not what's causing the itch. If you take a sedating antihistamine like Benadryl, then of course you'll be super sleepy and that can help with the itch, but it's not the underlying pathogenesis. And there are risks of taking antihistamines. I don't recommend a lot of my patients take antihistamines. There's some studies suggesting you can get dementia, uh, even from a low dose of a non-sedating antihistamine over the course of several years. So I really am very cautious with it. I've moved away from it. And what we're finding is a lot of these cytokines, IL-31, you know, IL-13, IL-4, like many of these cytokines, these are key cytokines driving itch. When you think of itch, you should be thinking of a lot of these cytokines, uh, not histamine. So that's one of the big things we're trying to break. That is awesome because also I, as a clinical nutritionist, do not love the low histamine diet. I realize it may be helpful for some, but I think it's something that when it doesn't work, the idea is let me take out more and more food and we blame something that may, like you have said, may have nothing to do with what's driving the itch under the surface and you're just not seeing any results. And and in, in my world, you're thus limiting nutrition, diet diversity, and even harming your mental health. Um, so let's talk a little bit 
as we get closer to the end of this conversation, which has been utterly fascinating, what are some of the treatment options? Obviously, there's new things that are coming down the pipeline. I've read some different small studies online that I'm sure if somebody is dealing with this, they might have looked up, you know, how different treatment options and research, and they might find that there's small studies like on oral catodophan or a topical capsaicin. Um, what, what works and what doesn't and what should we look forward to in the coming years? You know, there's a lot of things that may be listed as potential treatments, but I think it's really important to evaluate the strength of the evidence behind uh, a particular agent. So basically before this past year, we have have had, you know, really not any approved agents and the evidence was terrible. So like open label, minimal studies, like a few patients, not really controlled in any way. And so we really don't actually know from a controlled way the best way to treat this disease. What I can tell you from treating these patients is that we like to think on both the neural and the immune spectrum. So oftentimes these patients are started on, say, topical steroids first. The problem with topical steroids in this condition, even versus eczema and psoriasis, is that they're less effective here because there's that thickened layer of the skin in the nodule. So you can't get through that outer, outer, outer dead layer of the skin. So it's a little bit harder for the steroids to penetrate. So what we found is actually intralesional steroids can work well because we use a needle to inject the steroids where the inflammation is in the dermis. So that's actually something that's utilized that can give more relief to these itchy spots in these patients. Uh, but they have side effects, so atrophy, all of that stuff. Uh, there's uh, also... Uh, traditionally, there were some uh, nonspecific immune suppressants that we really don't like prescribing, things like methotrexate, cyclosporin, uh, you know, azathioprine. I really don't like these drugs because they're so nonspecific, they have uh, side effects. So, you know, methotrexate, like the liver, the kidneys, same thing with cyclosporin. Again, these patients are more likely to have problems and comorbidities anyways. So that's why targeted agents are so important in this disease. Um, and so now uh, Duplamab's FDA-approved uh, injection uh, for pragnagularis. Uh, like I mentioned, nemalizumab's um, very close behind the IL-31 uh, receptor, monoclonal antibody targeting uh, its receptor. And uh, I presented the, the, the phase three data. The other trials uh, should be reading out soon. Uh, so, you know, that will be another option. Uh, and then, and then beyond that, there'll be several other agents, yeah. And can I ask, like with the biologic options, if it stops the itch, because I guess that is the initial, I would assume, I'm just imagining because I don't have this condition, but I would think that if my main goal, my first goal, primary goal would be just stop the itch and then maybe worry about the lesions that you might not like, might feel unsightly or embarrassed about. Do the biologic drugs also help with the reduction of the lesions or is it more focused on the itch itself? Yeah, you're absolutely correct here. So this is really the goal of therapy is break the itch scratch cycle. So stop the itch and then the nodules will flatten over time. So that's exactly what we try to do with therapy. And the first readout is usually the itch reduction. And usually sleep mirrors, sleep should mirror uh, the itch. As the itch improves, the sleep improves as well. And the nodules get better, but it takes time. So some of the primary endpoints have been even as long as six months in the map study. Um, it was four months, the, the primary endpoint um, in the, the nemalizumab study or the IL-31, uh, but they also have 24-week data coming out. So it, the itch relief can happen very 
you know, can happen quick. And then the nodules take a little bit more time uh, because they're thickened and they need to flatten and all of that. Um, but there's also, uh, so jack inhibitors are also, you know, now being you know developed for prognodularis. And, uh, you know, that's happening as well. Um, what we found is that some folks have um, a lot of disease heterogeneity, especially African-Americans. So in inner city Baltimore, I probably see more African-American patients with prognodularis than anybody. And we see that sometimes the lesions are very fibrotic, like very, very thickened. And actually another cytokine, IL-22, my lab found was being secreted from these patients, mostly African-American in their bloodstream, which is associated with skin thickening. So the JAK inhibitor can also target that. So there's, you know, that's another agent that's coming through. Um, so that w it'll be great for patients because these patients have really suffered for a long time. And finally, that focus is coming to this group of patients. Well, I will say that I feel very honored to have you here because you're like the person to talk about this. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. You know, these types of forums, uh, you have such an incredible following and presence. And these types of forums are so important. So we can just make people more aware of the disease. And for all the patients out there, just to that, you know, feel reassured that, you know, but all about what your disease is, therapeutics that are coming to, to feel that there should be excitement, palpable excitement in this space. Yeah. And, and you also said uh, that you see patients, they fly in. So you have a whole clinic at Johns Hopkins. Yeah, we actually have folks from all around the world who uh, come in to see us. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're really treating patients and trying to make discoveries in our laboratory, my laboratory also. Yeah, that is awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Quatra, the first ever Periga nodularis episode. So the first of many. The first of many. many. We will discuss this again. Awesome. <laughs> but thank you so much. And I look forward to having you on again. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me. I hope that if you happen to know someone dealing with this particular condition or you yourself are living with it or you may be suspected that this episode is really, really helpful for you or whomever it is that you know. And if you know someone else who may be dealing with this, please share this episode with them because I find that with many of the chronic skin conditions that are less known, there's less information out there and oftentimes that leads people to a real state of feeling like there's just no hope at all, that no one's paying attention at all to the condition that they have and that's certainly not the case and it's one reason why I love having conversations like this about some of these lesser known skin conditions to help shed light on what's going on and what the possibilities are in terms of treatment and alternative options. So after sharing this episode, make a point to rate and review The Healthy Skin Show, then hit that subscribe button. You guys know it's so important. We stay in touch, you stay in the loop, you get continued access to this amazing trove of information because we've got a ton more great episodes headed your way this year. And when you hit that subscribe button, you'll get access to the weekly doses of inspiration, clinical research, all the tips and strategies that are helpful for you on your journey to rebuilding healthy skin. And then let's connect over on Instagram. I'm at Jennifer Fugo. Thank you so much for tuning in and I look forward to diving deeper with you in the next episode.